The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Ms. Rebecca Katz. She is a chef, an educator, an artist, and an author who has worked for over 15 years with cancer patients, health professionals, clinics, and hospital-centered programs teaching the importance of food and flavor in cancer healing and prevention. She is the founder of the Healing Kitchens Institute and has been a visiting chef and nutrition educator at the Commonweal Cancer Help Program in Bolinas, California for more than a decade. She also consults for Dr. Andrew Wiles, Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. Rebecca holds a Master's of Science degree in Health and Nutrition Education, and she received her culinary training from New York's Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts. She is the author of many cookbooks. I am holding her latest. It's the award-winning cookbook titled The Cancer-Fighting Kitchen, Nourishing Big Flavor Recipes for Cancer and Treatment and Beyond. And I should mention that she is also the author of The Longevity Kitchen, Satisfying Big Flavor Recipes, featuring the 16 top age-busting power foods. She's the author of The Healthy Mind Cookbook and Clean Soups, Simple Nourishing Recipes for Health and Vitality. All of these books contain beautiful recipes and images, perfect for anyone who is healing or in recovery, as well as people who are focused on prevention. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I am delighted. I don't know whether to put your book in my kitchen or on my coffee table because it is so beautiful and inspiring. And I know you're also an artist. I've seen your beautiful artwork online. I want to know what came first for you, food or art? Ooh, well, I like to say I was born with a paintbrush in one hand and a spatula in the other hand. Well, it's clear that these two topics are combining for you. Yes, and I think there is this great parallel because the culinary arts are, when we're talking about food and healing and really nourishing food, we're just talking about beautiful colors and textures and and creating food that just has so much taste and flavor, and the same can be said about painting. So the two really go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. And I think that you have certainly noticed, as have I, that the taste of a food can really be enhanced by the way in which we serve it. So, oh my gosh, shame on any hospital that puts food in styrofoam packaging. But to be able to put, for example, I was sharing a little secret from my kitchen that I love butternut squash soup in a turquoise bowl. I mean, it just tastes so much better. You know, we eat with our eyes. I mean, eating is a full sensory experience. So yeah, it's like butternut squash soup in a turquoise bowl. I mean, you can't get any more exciting than that. 
And the same could be said about if you're feeding somebody, let's say, that is not well and they need to eat and they need to get as much nutrient density as possible, but their appetite center is depressed because they're sick, are you going to give them this huge plate of food or or a huge bowl of soup or are you going to take maybe just like a little glass shooter and fill it with soup? Right. Just let them have their appetite wetted. So I feel like it's color, it's size, it's the texture, it's all those things. Yeah. Well, you've got a beautiful website and just to let our listeners know if they want to pop on and take a look, it's www.rebeccacats.com. And I'll provide a link to that. But you have several videos and you can easily spend, gosh, all morning or all afternoon just in the kitchen with you, a beautiful space, making everyone hungry. But you talk about how texture informs taste. What do you mean by that? So let's stay on the soup topic. Okay. Let's say you were making a butternut squash soup, right? And you wanted to have a creamy texture. I call it like you wanted to make it like a cashmere sweater, cashmere Mm. sweater soup. And you wanted it really velvety and silky, but you didn't blend it. You, you kind of were half and half about it. Let's say you put it in a food processor and it was a little grainy, right? Mm -hmm. And it didn't have that smooth texture that you were anticipating. And then all of a sudden, when somebody tastes that, the flavor could be off the charts, but the texture isn't quite right. So all of a sudden, you're kind of getting this kind of grainy texture when you really just wanted this smooth, creamy texture. Mm -hmm. So that really informs how you're going to register flavor. Right. And you show us secrets to making excellent soup. You have a signature soup, which is this magical broth. It's a mineral broth, you call it. It's got an amazing number of vegetables in it, plus what I would consider to be a secret and powerful ingredient, which is seaweed. Tell me about how you became introduced to seaweed and what is it about seaweed that you feel is important to put into a healing soup? Well, Thank you for asking. Magic mineral broth is like my contribution to the culinary canon. Yeah. And it came about because I was teaching at the time, and this was about 20 years ago. And everybody was doing these potassium broths, but they were using bitter greens, and the broths were really bitter, and they tasted like medicine. And I said, there is a better way to get minerals into a broth than having a soup that you felt like you had to hold your nose when you tasted it. So I had half my class do it one way, and then I worked with the other half of the class to kind of do it the way that I was doing it. And there was no contest that my way was the better way. Just because it tasted better, and one of the things that I threw in there was seaweed. And I was introduced to seaweed when I was in culinary school in New York because I was learning a lot about macrobiotic cooking at the time. 
And kombu and seaweed is a big part of macrobiotic cooking. And we were making arame strudels and we were playing with all different kinds of seaweeds. And of course, we were making a lot of miso soup and all sorts of things. And we were also using kombu when we cooked beans, just because it made the beans more digestible and also added mineral content. But my reason for using it in the broth was because I wanted more trace minerals that come from seaweed. And I wanted that umami flavor that you get from sea vegetables. So super nutrient-dense food, and it was going to give that broth that something-something. And Mm -hmm. the Japanese knew when they were, you know, making dashi broth that that was the secret. So I must have been channeling a Japanese grandmother. Mm. Well, on your website, you've got a source for ordering it in case people are not near a market that carries it. You're based in California now, so you have on both coasts and in some of the major cities in the Midwest, I think it's easier to find some of these ingredients. But in our age of internet purchasing these kinds of ingredients that you mentioned, and this is probably the most exotic ingredient that you've got in your book. What I really like about it is that most of the ingredients you can find in a typical grocery store. You've got lots of herbs and spices. What I really love about your book, though, because we're both based in this food as medicine approach with an artistic touch, (laughs) is that you've got an explanation for all of these ingredients in terms of what they uniquely deliver to our wellness. And so you call this your culinary pharmacy. And I feel the same way. I have a little glass dish on my table where I have combined, pre-combined, so it's easy to use, turmeric and pepper and some cumin and red pepper for a little bit of heat. And I sprinkle that on a lot of my food simply to get the anti-inflammatory properties that are inherent in turmeric. And you recommend doing the same thing. Just go ahead and pre-mix some of your spices so that they are easier to use when you've got some time constraints. Tell me about your vision with regard to spices and herbs. Well, I think that besides the fact that they are just gram for gram, so incredibly nutrient-dense, it is the best way to battle food fatigue. Mm. You can use different combinations of herbs and spices and take your taste buds around the world. Like you are giving them a passport and a plane ticket. So let's say you're preparing greens. You could prepare greens one day with an Asian flair by using ginger and tamari, and or you could make them kind of a, give them a Latin flair by using cumin and coriander and some lime, or you could give them an Indian profile, or you could make them Italian and be very garlic and red chili pepper flake oriented, or you can do lots of different things with herbs and spices. Mm -hmm. Um, You can make foods kind of warm and cozy by using cinnamon and clove and ginger. The sky is the limit. So it's like you have your basic flavor carriers, which I call fast, which is a good fat 
acid like lemons and limes, sea salt, and maybe a little bit of sweet if you need it. And they're kind of like your primary colors. But then you've got all of these wonderful secondary colors that are your spices that can really make your food taste just tremendous. I agree. You talk about this fast, fat, acid, salt, and sweet. And I think that of all of those components, the one that was certainly, I wouldn't say misunderstood, but underestimated for its potential in improving a dish would be acid. And you describe it as adding animation to a dish. Tell me how you discovered it and how can we apply that in our own kitchens? Oh, I am so glad that you said that because I feel like once people discover a lemon and how to use it, their cooking is going to change exponentially. You know, nobody really, you learn flavor balancing in culinary school, but you you really learn by trial and error. I think I became enamored with acid, lemon, lime, balsamic, or some vinegars, but particularly lemon, because if something is tasting like too flat, and I, I did this during a final exam because I was making a, a this pot of soup and it just wasn't working and I refused to get kicked out of culinary school for boring <laughs> carrot ginger soup or whatever. So I was tinkering to the last minute to help this soup kind of come alive and there was a lemon sitting like right on the counter next to me and I was in a rush and I put like just a quarter of a teaspoon of lemon juice. And all of a sudden, the flavors came alive, like all those herbs and spices, the spices in my soup that were sort of hiding came up. Hmm. And all of a sudden, the soup was brighter and more exciting. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to be using this more often. And then it's just now I don't cook without a lemon somewhere nearby. Yeah. And what I do is at the end of my cooking process, I taste. And if I feel like, hmm, you know, on a scale of 10, I may be at an 8. How do I get it up to a 10? Nine times out of 10, it's going to be because I may need a little bit more salt, but actually it's probably because I'm going to need like eight drops of lemon juice. Wow. Take me over the finish line. The other thing people should know is if you ever feel like you oversalt something, if you put in a little bit of lemon juice, you will erase the flavor of salt. You won't take the sodium content down. But it's like if you want something to taste less salty, you add lemon juice to it. Wow, that's such a great tip. Let me take one break because we're at the halfway mark and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Rebecca Katz. She is a chef, educator, artist, and author. And I have her latest book here with me in the studio. It's titled The Cancer Fighting Kitchen, Nourishing Big Flavor Recipes for Cancer Treatment and Recovery. And I want to add, and prevention. In other words, this book is for everyone. All right, I want to get back to something that you were saying with regard to the timing. On your videos, you show when you want to add things. 
So you're sauteing some vegetables in oil and you recommend getting the oil up to a nice warm temperature first and then adding the salt to help bring out some of the flavors. And then you say, if you're using turmeric root, for example, and I think this is just such a fabulous ingredient, but not to add it in the beginning because then it will turn bitter. These are the magical kinds of tools that professionally trained chefs understand. Tell me more about timing. Yes. If you were using, I think timing and layering of flavors is really important. And I think a lot of people don't realize, for example, that like when you're sauteing your onions, when you heat your pan up and then you put your olive oil in and you put those onions in, that that's the most important time to put salt in your dish right then and there. Because salt unlocks the natural flavor of food. So you want to make sure that you introduce it as soon as you introduce the first element of food that goes into the pan. And what does that salt do to those onions? It goes in and it it breaks down the molecules and it brings out the sweetness of the onions and it allows them to sweat. And it allows them to lightly turn golden and they become sweet. And all of a sudden, they have a lot of flavor. And then if you're going to add, let's say, then you would add your garlic. Because if you added your garlic first, your garlic would be exposed to too much heat and it would burn. But once it's added with onions in the pan, then the garlic has a little bit of buffer in it. And then the garlic permeates and there is just nothing better than the smell of onions and garlic. Mm. I mean, you can pretend that you're a cook by just sauteing onions and garlic if you want to impress somebody. That's so funny. I like to have a fragrance in the air when I have a guest coming over. And you're right, that combination of onion and garlic, invariably when somebody walks to the door, they go, oh my gosh, it smells so good in here. Yes, I've been cooking all day. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So these are the things that help you build flavor. And, And then it's like you add herbs, fresh herbs, at the very end versus dry herbs, which are best added at the beginning, like with your onions and everything else going on. So the dry herbs, all of those oils get released into the food. And I wish you could see me because I'm actually, I'm like, I, I'm grinning ear to ear. I, <laughs> I can just still, it's just so exciting to me when I put herbs, when I put spices in a pan with oil, because all of a sudden they just bloom and they start smelling so incredible. And you just can start to see the alchemy of cooking happen. Yeah. And that is one of my favorite words when it comes to cooking, as well as art. And the beauty of your work is that it is so incredibly artful. I have to comment on a comment that you made. I think it was in one of your videos. And you spoke about your vegetable bin being like a box of Crayola crayons. And even some of your descriptions, you've got this gorgeous carrot and beet coleslaw that you call Technicolor slaw. Those colors are irresistible. And certainly when we're well, 
it's delicious. But when we're not feeling well, I think adding that extra color or at least being aware of it, it's incredibly powerful in terms of enhancing our desire to eat. Oh, I would absolutely agree. Because, you know, when you're not feeling like eating, I mean, your world, your food world is pretty black and white and gray. You know, it's that in that value, the grays. And and as I mentioned before, we eat with our senses. So if your sense of taste is off, right, or your appetite center is just not signaling, you need everything else to be recruited. You need to make everything needs to be a little bit more accentuated. And that's one of the reasons why I find that using spices, not spices to be spicy, but spices to be flavorful, is really important, not only because of the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory value of them, but because maybe there are spices that we're not used to and it tricks our taste buds into getting out of that little gray world into a more technicolor world. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like maybe maybe we don't eat cumin and cinnamon together every day, but boy, when you do, it's like, wow. So it's like everything needs to be recruited. Yeah. And it's like if somebody is not well and their favorite food is roasted chicken, like a plain roasted chicken, it's like I always say, don't eat your favorite food when you're not feeling well or you're going through cancer treatment. And the reason why is because you have an expectation of how that food is going to taste. And if it doesn't taste that way, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to push the plate away. Mm. But what I would say is, well, you could do, you could roast the chicken in a different way with orange and cumin and coriander and cinnamon and do something with it and make it taste totally different. Or you could just eat something that maybe you might not normally eat and the taste is just so different that your expectation, you don't have those expectations. So you're surprised. Right. Your taste buds are cajoled into it. Right. And then you realize, wow, and this is not just for people who are sick. This is just rule of thumb. If, if you're interested in eating in a healthy manner, but you don't want to feel like you're eating healthy and you're being in a deprivational mode, really get out your spices and look at flavor combinations and just and really explore the world of colorful food. And not only will you be getting every nutrient you need, right, because then you don't have to think about it, but your taste buds will be so surprised. Like even just putting some parsley and mint together with lemon juice and olive oil and putting it in a little mini food processor and wazzing it around and drizzling it on some chicken or fish or vegetables or whatever and all of a sudden you have this little dollop of yum. Like it's like putting a you know, a pin on a black dress. It's like an accessory. Right. So this is the way to get excited about food 
and make it really turn your black and white food world into technicolor. Absolutely. And speaking of technicolor, I appreciate the way you describe the color in food and how the plant survival tools, the colors in the plant, those phytochemicals that give plants protection against pests and invaders, they become our survival tools. Talk a little bit about that. Isn't that just the best? Yes. I mean, when you think about that, it's really quite powerful. I agree. I mean, it really, it's so powerful to think that what that plant has to do to survive and thrive is our medicine. And it creates all the taste and all the flavor, and it creates the color, and it's life-giving life. Right. And it's vibrant and fresh and alive. It hasn't, and the only processing that happens is when the farmer picks it or you pick it. And you take that into your kitchen and you prepare it. And it's not something that is what I call dead food that's been over-processed and in a box. Right. It's alive. And I think sometimes people get really hung up, at least I know out here, where everybody can over-nutritionalize things, Mm -hmm. right? Like, this is the diet of the day, and I'm keto, and I'm paleo, and I'm vegan, and I'm I'm whatever, and I'm 50 million different things, and, and we forget about that food is this living thing, and that if we just get down to basics and eat what is growing and in season and we don't have to call it anything other than yum, we're really going to get all the nutrients, many of the nutrients that we need and we're going to, our body will respond and resonate with it. Mm -hmm. We don't have to kind of make it into something rigid. Right. We can just honor it as being just wonderful in its own right. I agree. We just have a minute left, unfortunately. And I have to have one question that you actually introduced in some of your work. You say the question for you has become, what does it mean to feel nourished? What does it mean to you? How would you explain that to an audience? Well, I think the most important thing is, To feel nourished, I feel like somebody cooks something for you and there is an exchange. So there's a sense of community. There's a sense the food has been prepared with good intention, that you're using the best quality ingredients you can afford, that you have a respect for the food, that you feel just delighted when you eat that it's not this chore, but that you really, you just, that your body senses that it's almost like you've been given a culinary hug. Oh, that is absolutely a beautiful end note. We're going to have to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank producer Dan Hemmelgarn in the recording studios at KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Rebecca Katz, chef, educator, 
artist and author. If you'll visit her website, www.rebeccacats.com, you will see all of these beautiful recipes, as well as educational videos. It's just a wonderful way to spend an afternoon and become inspired. Sending out a culinary hug to you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda. Melinda.